Jay, I was thinking about Spider-Man, and it occurs to me... That his powers make no sense, Miles? Uh, no, no, I already knew that. But what about J. Jonah Jameson? Well, he makes sense sometimes. But where does he stand on mutants? It seems like we should be seeing more anti-mutant screed from the guy, considering how hard he is on Spider-Man. Oh, no, 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 dude, you've got it all wrong. JJJ is actually really adamantly in favor of mutant equality. That's... surprising. It's actually kinda not. His issue with Spider-Man isn't really the powers, it's the vigilantism. So JJJ is not against superpowers? Well, that would be a difficult stance for him to commit to, given... The civil rights implications? That his son is a werewolf. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 298 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and its most vast, epic, and generally miserable alternate universe at the moment, the Age of Apocalypse. But before we dive into some additionally miserable aspects of the Age of Apocalypse, we have an announcement about this month. Oh, that's right, it's June. By the time this goes up, it's gonna be, oh god, more than halfway through June. You may have seen this on our Twitter if you follow that, and elsewhere. As we did last year, we are donating our June merch profits to Trans Lifeline. Last year, we raised more than $600 just through that, um, which was pretty awesome. This year, it would be really cool to see if we can get it to 1000 So if there's stuff in the shop you've been waiting to get, and if you have the flexible income, now's probably a good time to do it. Otherwise, if there's not stuff you want, but if you want to support Trans Lifeline, you can donate directly at their site, and that would be super cool too. Yeah, let's do some awesome work, folks. Awesomeness aside, I, I guess it's time for us to to dive back from our own timeline gone askew into the X-Men's timeline gone askew in the Age of Apocalypse. And this, this week, we're going to be covering a series that's slightly different from the rest of the titles that we've looked at. And this one, it's not about mutants at all. In fact, it's about what the other characters who you're used to seeing as superheroes, mostly Avengers, are doing in Earth-295. This is X-Universe. It's a two-issue miniseries, and it started coming out parallel to issues number three and four of the other AOA minis. And because anything that is in any way different in the 1990s has to have some kind of a gimmick that makes it more expensive, this time we had cardstock covers with foil logos for both X-Universe number one and two. Because why not? I mean, affordability? Uh, well, affordability, I, I don't even know what that word means in 1995X Comics. This series seems to have been sort of a last-minute, ill-planned beast, from what I understand and from what I've read. Uh, it only starts halfway through the Age of Apocalypse, like we mentioned. There are some definite editorial inconsistencies, which we'll totally get to. And from an interview with the artist Carlos Pacheco in Comicology Magazine, we learn that the creative team was not given very much time to prepare, and specifically, I love this part, when Pacheco asked for reference material from the Age of Apocalypse Weapon X miniseries, because that sort of ties into X-Universe a little bit, uh, Marvel just sent him the old Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X storyline, like the one that we covered in the podcast a long time ago, which is an impressive screw-up. Yeah, that's deeply, deeply bizarre. And 
That definitely comes through in this series. There's a lot that's very well played and well choreographed, and there are a lot of good moments, but man, this is a mess, and it's kind of a depressing mess, because I remember loving this the first time, and reading through it again, I'm not actually sure where that was coming from. <laughs> well, I think it's because there are a lot of really good moments in this series, and for me, the moments were what stuck with me. I mean, there's a Thor-related one that we will probably talk at great length about that is just, like, breathtakingly excellent, and then there are a lot of parts that are less so. Another factor for me, I think, was that I was coming in really having read almost no non-X Marvel comics. So the fact that this series basically reads like there's someone holding it up for you going, get it, get it, get it, do you get it, do you get it, do you, did you see that, do you know who that is, did you get it, did you get it, was just totally lost on me, and I was really proud of myself that I did in fact get it. I mean, for somebody who was relatively new to Marvel, I was pretty proud of you too. And like you said, there are good moments, and between them and my initial experience, I think I ended up reading it through kind of metaphorical rose-tinted glasses, and... Yeah, with those set aside and the cynicism of age and the frame of reference of someone who's actually familiar with this universe, well, there are still some good moments. And we will talk extensively about those, because, you know, this is me, I, I like talking about the good stuff. But first, we should talk about the previous stuff. What's the background for X-Universe? A lot, because I've just realized this is our last miniseries before X-Men Omega, isn't it? It is, yeah. This is the last part of Age of Apocalypse, and since it comes toward the end, we figured it would be better to cover right here at the end. So, here we are now, and here's where we came from. In the mutant-centric dystopian alternate timeline of the Age of Apocalypse, that's Earth-295 to those of you keeping count, mutant heroes and villains have thus far been the focus of both our coverage and the miniseries that we've looked at. The occasional Peter Corbeau or Misty Knight aside, of course. Most of the humans we've seen have been crowds of mostly nameless refugees or victims of mass cullings, or in a few cases, the human high council or people in equivalent positions of power. Speaking of that human high council, they run human-controlled Europe, and they're headquartered in London in Big Ben, which should currently have a sentinel button leg sticking out of it thanks to Logan and Jean, but sadly in this series does not. Man, that would be so great. Since this is the second half of the Age of Apocalypse series of miniseries, the Human Eye Council is, you know, elsewhere. They're busy with the fleet that they're sending west to nuke North America, again in the Weapon X miniseries, since North America is the seat of Apocalypse's power. But this timeline has to have other significant players. I mean, we've seen a scant few humans in positions of power. We've seen, you know, one scientist, we've seen the occasional fighter. But there are so many unaccounted for. What have they been up to? Let's find out what at least a few of them have been up to in X-Universe number one, Last Stand. This issue's story is by Scott Lobdell, the script is by Terry Cavanaugh, pencils are by Carlos Pacheco, inks are by Cam Smith, colors are by Kevin Summers, separations by Electric Crayon, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, our initial point of view character for the series is going to be Gwen Stacy. For those of you unfamiliar with Gwen Stacy, for a very, very long time, she was Peter Parker's serious girlfriend, and then she was killed and was mostly famous for having died. Much, much later, there were some really weird retcons around her, and still later after that, an alternate universe version of Gwen was brought back as Spider-Woman or Ghost Spider. There are actually multiple ones, and you should actually just read all of the Spider-Gwen and Ghost Spider stuff because it is all spectacularly good. 
right now, Gwen is in what's left of Wakanda, you know, the nation in Africa that's run by Black Panther. But the way it's portrayed in this series, it seriously looks like it's straight out of an old hunger relief charity commercial from the 80s or the 90s. There are, like, emaciated adults in rags feeding the dying. There are emaciated naked children who aren't doing much better. And all of this is taking place under this ignored Black Panther monument. With Gwen Stacy standing in the middle of it in short shorts with her long blonde hair blowing in the breeze being every bit the white savior stereotype from those same sets of commercials. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm a little more okay with it just simply because I think Carlos Pacheco, who we also saw in the Bishop miniseries, we liked his work there, uh, I think he does a pretty good job with this series. Like, there's a level of realism that somehow helps mask that this is a pretty caricatured scene in general. I think he does well with this series. I think this bit is entirely on the writer, given the characters we have to work with and the scenario that they're stuck into at the, at the beginning. And in fact, the fact that this is, as far as I know, just an entirely white cast. It is, yeah. And the thing is, it wasn't supposed to be. Originally, uh, the pilot that works with the good guys, Clint Barton, Hawkeye, originally that was supposed to be James Rhodes, War Machine, who's black. And in fact, he was drawn that way. And then I think Marvel had the artist replace him with Bullseye, and then when Marvel got the pages, they in-house altered it to be Clint Barton instead. I don't know why. Like, having even one black character in the main cast, I think would have gone a long way toward making the Wakandans' lack of agency feel not as bad. Yeah, there's Doom, and I guess he's not white, but he's white passing. And if you're not familiar with that bit of his backstory coming into this, you're not going to know. Well, anyway, as Gwen is consoling a starving child whose mother is dying, suddenly there's a big old boom, and we see the child's baseball cap, sort of shredded and on fire, fall to the ground in the midst of all the destruction. It's a pretty devastating image, I gotta say. It is, but it also reinforces the fact that the Wakandans in this scene and the scenario in this series are basically being used as props. Yeah, I mean, I know we do find out um, in some of the supplemental material that Apocalypse's forces just demolished Wakanda and killed Black Panther to get at Wakanda's vibranium, which, okay, that makes sense in the story, but you'd think they'd have at least some cool technology left. And you'd think that the people of Wakanda would be able to organize more of that response in general, and again, I feel like it plays back into those frustrating and acutely racist and ethnocentric tropes. Yeah, not a big fan of that part, but I do kind of enjoy, well, I mean, it's it's horrific, but I do still kind of enjoy what happens next, which is that we find out who caused all this destruction. It's the Age of Apocalypse's equivalent of the Marauders. We've seen the Marauders in the main universe as Mr. Sinister's kill squad, basically. And in this, they're, um, they're different. Here, they're four humans who basically like killing other humans, like having relative immunity from the caste system in Apocalypse's world, so that's their thing. Who have we got on this particular team? We have Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, among other characters in the main universe, who goes by red for some reason. I guess he's wearing some red. His, his hair is kind of red. Uh, I, maybe he heard Logan call Jean red at one point, and he was like, hey, I want to be called red. Maybe Logan will call me red someday. We've got Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, who goes by Dirigible, which is hilarious because it's a really long and inefficient code name. It is, yeah. And I mean, what I mainly know Dirigibles for is that one that famously caught on fire and crashed, which, well, given what happens to him here, I guess that's not that different. Oh, that is, in fact, exactly what happens to him. So, you know. 
We also have the Owl. Fun fact, the Owl was, as you may recall, originally going to be X-Factor's nemesis until Louise Simonson decided to invent Apocalypse. And we have Arcade. You know, the assassin who creates basically a murder theme park and brings his victims into it. And here, he's just like, blowing people up that that doesn't seem like arcade arcade only likes murder plots if they're as complicated as that old mousetrap board game or like the incredible machine that old that old computer game yeah arcade is 100 percent in for the complexity and the showmanship this arcade is is has has a problem that i think later on will be repeated with the arcade of the ultimate universe which is that he's basically big guns and murder without any of what made Arcade a really distinctive villain. I feel like you could fix Arcade in this. I mean, he only shows up for a couple pages, but you could fix it by just having Carlos Pacheco do one slight art change. The bow tie? No, although I would like to see the bow tie. No, just have him have a single tear running down his cheek in every single panel to imply how very disappointed he is that nobody's in a death pinball machine. I don't think that that message would necessarily come across from just the art. I think you'd need some, like, clever dialogue around it as well. Uh, Well, maybe he could be, like, Ultimate Sinister or the Joker in Suicide Squad and have a tattoo that says, I am so disappointed that no one is in a death pinball machine. I also 100% do not buy these guys getting along for long enough to do this more than, like, once. Oh, God, yeah, the Kingpin would, like, squish Arcade's head within seconds. How many times have the Kingpin and the Owl killed each other in, in 616? A lot. A whole lot. Well, we don't get to find out what their interpersonal dynamic is, because as Gwen starts what looks like it's going to be a last stand and shoots one of them, suddenly a giant spider robot appears, and the narration begins what's going to be a trend in this miniseries of laying the references and the metaphors on real thick. But something about this mechanical behemoth, the webbed carapace, the spider mandibles, still prompts a ping somewhere she can't place. Spider-mandibles. It's referencing Spider-Man by shoehorning in the phrase Spider-mandibles. I mean, that just goes right around the other side of dumb into something I just have to love and celebrate. Yeah, it goes into a sort of transcendent space where you just sort of stare at it and, and, and kind of have to celebrate the fact that this was actually printed on paper on purpose. I have very mixed feelings about the movie Anchorman, but the whole I'm not even mad, I'm just impressed line applies to a whole lot of things, and it definitely applies to this. I feel like between that and the scene where they're trying to understand what love is, the movie's probably worth at least one watch. I think so, yeah. So anyway, this giant spider robot is actually Tony Stark's supply transport, piloted like we said by Clint Barton, who was supposed to be James Rhodes, but isn't. So what's Tony Stark like in the Age of Apocalypse? Because he's definitely not Iron Man. Ah, he's great. I really like Age of Apocalypse Tony Stark because he's what you get when you take Tony Stark out of a world where he has access to the best of everything. This is Tony Stark who has worked with what he has had to work with and who in some ways is much more impressive for that. He's still got the... You know, the arc reactor breastplate setup, it looks a lot more like the OG um, version of it, where it was it was a whole chest plate. He 
is is running humanitarian missions and he feels much much more like age of adventure adventure serial character well that certainly helped by the fact that he's still got that kick-ass pencil thin mustache yeah but he's got like swoopy and perpetually wind-blown hair too yeah he seems like he's straight out of the rocketeer or something i love it oh man has pacheco ever done a rocketeer series because he would be a really good artist for that you know, he really would. That's a good point. Carlos Pacheco, if you're listening, and if you can get that license, please draw a Rocketeer series for us. Thank you very much. Yeah. I just watched that movie again um, for the first time in a fairly long time. Last month, maybe a few weeks ago. My my sense of time is really, really skewed right now. I think it was technically end of April, beginning of May. I'm assuming the movie totally holds up still? Oh yeah, it's objectively pretty much a perfect movie. Hell yeah. Well, the good guys use their spider robot to just straight up kill all the marauders, which is largely unremarkable, except that the owl, right as he's about to get blown up, looks up and is trying to figure out what's happening. And she says, who? Because that's the sound owls make, everybody. Get it? Get it? That's one of the sounds owls make. Owls make a lot of sounds, and a lot of them are weirder than that. Okay, so you're saying it's, like, even odds that he would have said who or made the sound of an owl, like, coughing up a bunch of mouse bones? Yeah, or just screeching inhumanly. I mean, there might be some of that, too. It's between panels. So, we have now Tony Stark, Clint Barton, and Gwen Stacy, three of our cast. And the fourth member of our cast comes to greet them. That is Donald Blake, who I will tell you about if you don't know about him, because this is Thor-related, and longtime listeners, or listeners to my other podcast, may remember that I like Thor, like, a lot. Yeah, this is this is like the return of, of Earth-295, Miles' Thorner. Yes, Miles' Thorner. It's a corner with Thor in it. So, Miles, tell us about Don Blake. What is his deal? Well, in the comics, like the movies, Odin thought that Thor was too arrogant, so he punished him. But the way this worked in the comics, because it was Stan Lee writing in the Silver Age, is that Odin turned Thor into a doctor with a bad leg named Donald Blake, who didn't remember the fact that he was really Thor and had a bunch of fake memories of just being, like, a dude. The deal with Don Blake is that when he was off doing, like, a doctor vacation off in Scandinavia parts— he found a walking stick when he got trapped in a cave and in frustration whacked it against a nearby rock and it turned out that the walking stick was really Mjolnir and then all of a sudden he was Thor. And so for quite a long time in the Thor comic, Thor would basically alternate between being the big, burly, long-haired Viking dude and this doctor, Don Blake, who was basically Thor's secret identity. And it was very much like a Superman, Clark Kent, Lois Lane deal because the nurse, Jane Foster that Don Blake was in love with, she was just in love with Thor. Or so he thought. Really, she loved him, but he thought that nobody could love him because he had a bad leg. So there you go. Yeah, well, the, the key difference there between between that and the Lois, Lois Lane Superman Clark Kent thing is that Don Blake was actually physically disabled. Uh, right, yeah, rather than just, you know, pretending to, I don't know, need glasses or whatever. Well, pretending to be very, very awkward and clumsy. And, and mm-hmm. generally not Superman. 
Also, a slight fun fact, when the horse-looking Thor guy, Beta Ray Bill, needed a secret identity, Odin transplanted the Don Blake persona onto him so that he could look like a more human kind of person. And after that, Thor had his own new secret identity named Sigurd Jarlson, who was also pretty great. Anyway, all of that very much aside, it's Don Blake. But in this universe, there's really nothing Thor-esque going on. He's just a doctor with a bad leg. Great hair, though great hair and a great beard carlos pacheco draws a very full and attractive beard on this man and i mean my beard's pretty good but i wish it was like that well he doesn't he doesn't just have the hair and the beard and the name he's also got his own overwrought narration some see a god in this man a healer with a sublime gift for soothing their wounds and easing their pain the power to help all but himself and he and Tony Stark are, are BFFs and, and dodge past Gwen's suspicion to, to have a very, very long hug. Tony is there not just to get a really awesome hug, but he's there to bring Don and Gwen to London. And I'm, I think Don and Gwen are supposed to be a couple, although I'm not entirely sure. And honestly, just based on affection and, like, dialogue, Don and Tony seem more likely to be a couple, so... I don't know, but also it's Marvel in 1996, so I got nothing. What would their couple name be? Dwen? Doni? Oh, I was thinking Tony and Don. I'm sure that there's already a Thor Iron Man ship name, but, you know, since since neither of them is officially those characters, I, I, I guess just, um, oh, maybe Blark? Blark! Blake and Stark. I love it. Okay, they're Blark. I also realized as we were talking about this that if Iron Man and Britannic from Excalibur were a couple, their couple name could be Ironic. I I guess that's true. So anyway, they're all heading to London, where we see that Big Ben is on its side. Big Ben should not be on its side. It should be upright with a sentinel butt sticking out, but whatever. Maybe it fell over because of the weight of the sentinel, the sentinel butt. Well, then where's the sentinel butt? Scavenged. Oh, well, that's probably true. Freaking butt scavengers. Anyway, what's going on here is that the fourth horseman of Apocalypse, the one that we've only heard of but haven't seen, has his armada hovering over London. This fourth horseman is Mikhail Rasputin, the brother of Colossus, who's kind of a messed up dude in the main universe, and here is just sort of a robot-looking dude. He looks kind of like one of the phalanx, like he's all covered in yellow circuitry and stuff. I feel like... The fact that there are no Excalibur, Weird Happenings organization, Black Air, or Doctor Who references in here is a crime against X-Comics set in the UK. That's a really good point. We shake our fist at you, X-Universe, but, but also you're pretty cool. One interesting little thing is that one of the ships that's hovering over London is very clearly ship from old X-Factor, you know, Apocalypse's ship that X-Factor took. But that shouldn't make sense, right? Yeah, didn't Magneto blow that up? I'm pretty sure, yeah. But then again, the ship that we saw in Tales from the Age of Apocalypse by the Light, even though it was it seemed to be that ship, did look different, so I don't know. Maybe it's just modeled off of that ship. Maybe that ship just sort of set the style for one's airships in this age. Oh, like it's one of those perfume knockoffs? Like th- there are a couple little details that are wrong? Yeah, um, and it's, it's, it, this, is, this is actually like Shup. <laughs> this is Shup. Okay, we're going to call it Shup for the rest of the episode. So the deal is that Mikhail has showed up to 
basically have a peace conference with humanity. He wants to make peace with human-controlled Europe uh, so that they can, you know, not be all murdering each other anymore. He claims he wants to make peace with human-controlled Europe. I think we all know better at this point. We totally do. And two of the skeptical people are two members of what would be the Fantastic Four in the main universe, Ben Grimm and Susan Storm. We learned that Reed and Johnny were working with them back in the day, but when they used an experimental airship to try to evacuate a bunch of humans from a war zone, uh, Reed and Johnny died. And Johnny set on fire, because, you know, irony. Well, the ship was sabotaged specifically. This 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 was going to be, I believe, their their flight, which was sabotaged and, and killed half the crew, and now there's just Sue and Ben left, and neither of them got superpowers out of it. No, but they are pretty badass, and they're working for the Human High Council, while the Human High Council is off hanging out with Gateway and Logan over in the Weapon X miniseries. Sue, of course, specializes in invisible infiltration because, you know, of course she does. And and Ben? Well, he's a pilot, and he's real big, so there you go. He references his Aunt Petunia, though, so I'm happy. <laughs> yep. Suddenly, there's a giant explosion because the field command center that's near them and all of the pilots in it who could maybe do like a second bombing run after the first bombing run got sort of screwed up over in Weapon X, they're all dead. Everything is terrible. And when Ben and Sue go to investigate, they find a big gray monster with ripped purple pants and kind of dumb looking hair. This is Gray Hulk, who is very, very proud of having transcended humanity without mutants' help. And Sue and Ben are extremely un unimpressed, and Sue, in fact, uh, blows his ear off fairly graphically. That's relevant. It totally is. Uh, I also kind of enjoy that Ben stares in disbelief and asks what, what that thing is. Get it? Because he's supposed to be the thing. Yes, yes, I get it. I get it, Miles, and I get it, like, tiny jumping up and down imaginary person standing behind the comic going, get it, get it, on every page, which I really, I really think is basically a feature of this. Huzzah! So, anyway, Mikhail, as he prepares for this peace conference, is talking to sort of his enforcer, lieutenant, whatever, aboard Shup. This is Matt Murdock, and uh, Matt's deal in this universe, aside from being bald and working for the villains, is that after being blinded as a kid, um, he was found by Mikhail, who went, hey, I've got this program to soup up normal humans, how'd you like some sight back? So as far as I can tell, he basically just squished a metal visor around Matt's head and was like, there you go, kid. So now Matt has some limited vision, kind of, although if you're familiar with Daredevil, you know it's way less than his super senses, which means that whatever Mikhail did not only was redundant to those, but must have suppressed them. We also have a third person hanging out in Shup, and that is Empath, the Hellion in the main universe who uses his powers to emotionally manipulate people and is a horrible, horrible human being. I don't know that I would describe what he's doing here as hanging out. Well, okay, so he's naked in a crucifix position in a big giant machine with wires sticking out of his head because Mikhail is going to use his powers to, like, cause the crowd to, you know, support him and worship him and then tear each other apart. Yeah, Mikhail's totally a villain. It's totally manipulation. This is clear from the start. He also looks exactly like Darkseid. He does kind of look like Darkseid. If Darkseid had more of a yellow color scheme and was more svelte. Well, yeah, we're, we're, we're like, slightly, slightly tumbled, I guess. Okay, tumbled dark side aboard Shup with shitty Daredevil. 
Yeah. Um, tumbled like, like in a rock tumbler, not just, you know, thrown down a hill or something. Or not just, you know, doing feats of tumbling like a rogue in D&D or an acrobat, I guess. No, because, you know, Darkseid kind of looks like he's made of rocks and Mikhail kind of looks like he's made of rocks that have been tumbled and thus smoothed out in both texture and shape. We offer so many services to you in this podcast, listeners. There were three of them just now. Look, sometimes it's challenging to translate from a visual to an auditory medium. We do what we can. We do what we can, as does the leader of the humans who is treating on this big floating platform above a crowd with Mikhail, and that leader is Victor Von fucking Doom. He's he's the head of security for the Human High Council. Well, right, but he's the one that's talking to uh, Mikhail since the Human High Council is off hanging out with, with Gateway. Yeah, he is their official representative in this context. And so, first of all, Von Doom in this timeline is awesome, and I love him. Um, he doesn't have the mask. He doesn't refer to himself in the third person. He does still have his face is still really, really scarred. Um, he he does wear sort of a medieval looking green tunic situation. I don't know if he's a master of science and sorcery, but he's still great. We do find out at the end of one of the issues because they have these little infographics about what happened to different characters that um, he does not run his own country because that got all fucked up by, you know, apocalypse as happens. But he's still rad. Yet. He does not run his own country yet. Do you think his mom is still being held hostage by the devil like in the main universe? I don't know. What's up with Stephen Strange on Earth 295? Uh, we haven't seen him. I don't think it ever comes up. Maybe in one of the what-if issues. Okay, well, um, I, I, I'm not sure. Did, would that have happened before or after the timeline split? I don't know. As we've established, the timeline only vaguely makes sense, so I feel like down that conjectural path lies madness. There's not a lot of magic-based stuff on Earth-295, so I'm guessing that that's all pretty much excised from his background. Unfortunate. And Mikhail's whole deal is that he's he pretends to be the friendly horseman who likes humanity and wants to help them, and he continues that ruse in, in the speech he gives from, from his spaceship balcony. On this bright night, people of our planet, I come not as an agent of apocalypse, simply a soul in search of brotherhood. War is our common foe. It's just as well that the horsemen don't have official designations anymore, because that would have been awkward. <laughs> yeah, good point. So... Mikhail invites Donald Blake, who's kind of like a big celebrity Dr. Deal uh, in this universe, and his entourage, which is to say the rest of the main characters, onto Shup as a show of good faith. He's going to give them a tour. No, he's not. One of the more effective scenes does happen here, though, which is that as Shup flies away, uh, the enormous, enormous throng, and Pacheco does a really good job of conveying just how many people are down here. It's thousands and thousands and thousands. They start climbing up this giant statue to try to get into the ship, and the statue breaks in half from all of their weight, and they just start falling, and some are just barely hanging onto the edge of the ship before they fall, and it's, it's rough. It is, and this is, again, all empaths' work. Exactly, yeah. So once everyone's aboard shop, Mikhail does not try to hide anything. He's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to use this empath kid to make the humans tear themselves apart because this is a world that doesn't want them. And that's the way that I'm going to show them mercy and be nice is to make it so they don't have to be in the world anymore. And y'all are cool, so I'll try to augment you, but probably none of you are going to survive. 
That takes us to X-Universe number two, Dying Breath. This story by Scott Lobdell, script by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Carlos Pacheco and Terry Dodson, inked by Cam Smith and Robin Riggs, colored by Kevin Tinsley, separations by Electric Crayon, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. All in one breath, nice. I have my moments. Like you referenced, Jay, Mikhail is a big fan of upgrading humans. He did it to shitty Daredevil. Uh, apparently he did it to himself because he's covered in that weird circuitry stuff, or maybe he just, you know, was in a tumbler. And so he offers the humans the same chance. They can join him and serve him and get augmented as a way to basically be in the favor of the new order where he's going to run everything as like a benevolent dictator. Well, this is an offer that he's making to a very, very small percentage of the humans, basically what he considers the best of the best back down on the surface. Um, and this happens parallel to some of the stuff that's going on in the background through the rest of this issue. Most of the humans who can take him up on this offer, because it seems like a chance at survival. It's a chance to a better life and to maybe some kind of future. One of those includes the mother of a young kid who is sort of significant in this series, but is really more of a MacGuffin. Yeah, this woman is Marta, and her, I guess, husband or partner, who has a pretty sweet mullet and mustache combo, is named Rafe, and they bid a tearful farewell because she's going to go into this program for the good of her family. And this reminds me so much of the Uplift program in Greg Ruckus' comic, Lazarus. If you haven't read Lazarus, it's about a future where basically business dynasties, these families who are very wealthy, have split up the world, and everybody who serves them are serfs, and everyone else in the world are called waste. And one of the ways to become a serf is to get uplifted by proving that you can be of value to the ruling class. Um, great comic, real depressing, uh, sadly plausible. Uh, but yeah, I'm getting real big Lazarus vibes from this whole concept here. Uh, with the qualifier that it's been a while since I've read Lazarus... So I don't know how parallel this is to Uplift. The Upscale program comes at a very high cost. The Upscale programs claim the lives of 999 out of 1,000 human subjects in the initial autoprobes for graft compatibility alone. Only one of a hundred of the survivors live through the actual splicing, but the vast majority of those reject the implants within the first few hours. Okay, I understand that Apocalypse's horsemen don't care about killing, like, tens of thousands of people for almost no reason, but come on, the costs in electricity alone hardly seem worth it. Well, we know Apocalypse likes the long game stuff. We know that he basically lets people get away with weird shit if they go, it's for science. So I assume that that's just what Mikhail's been telling him. Right, but Mikhail's got very little to show in the way of results. Like, he took shitty Daredevil and used some robot stuff to make his sight worse, and later on we find out that the people he uplifts, he just basically, like, gives them guns for arms and makes them remote-controlled. Like, those results, I feel like you could do much, much more simply. Like, I understand that supervillains are always going to choose the most complex possible way of doing something evil, but this is a stretch even for a supervillain. Yeah, no, it's 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 very very silly. It also seems like it should be a business deal given his whole whole feeding on hope thing. I mean, I guess so, but we already established in our amazing X-Men episode that that doesn't really make sense. Well, I guess Abyss and Mikhail maybe get along cuz um neither of their stated plans make sense. So as that pitch is is going along, meanwhile, aboard Mikhail's ship, Tony Stark is the first of the heroes on the table. 
I really appreciate that we don't actually see the heroes get captured or restrained between issues one and two, because that just implies that it was inevitable and there's no need to even show the struggle, like they were under such overwhelming force and authority that they couldn't do anything. Yeah, we've talked before about how well some of the series in here convey scale. This one does it by by not showing it, um, by just making it such a foregone conclusion how overpowered these characters are. Yep. But the heroes do have a plan. Okay, so they've just they knew that this was going to happen and they anticipated it. So they've hacked Tony's mechanical heart such that it'll blue screen the entire ship the moment one of one of the probes contacts it. Of course, that'll also stop Tony's heart, but since it's a robo-heart, and since they can totally just pull a pulp fiction and inject a big needle full of adrenaline into it, that'll wake him up, that's no big deal. I mean, in general, it's probably easier and quicker to restart a heart, assuming what you're trying works, than it is to restart an entire spaceship. Mm-hmm. Even one as complex as shop. If nothing else, there's there's a narrower window after which you know if it worked or not. Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out here that as our heroes escape from their uh, holding pods, I guess, um, Clint Barton is indeed drawn and colored as James Rhodes. So, uh, Marvel, you missed a panel there in your bizarre, pointless whitewashing. They talk as they go about, you know, their, their kludged together tech that they've gradually, you know, stolen and upgraded. And they're able to use it. Tony's able to use use it um, and, and use his his cybernetics to track the tracers and their confiscated guns so they can rearm everyone. And I gotta say, man, I like this Tony so much. He is much, much, much more interesting when he is forced to be resourceful in the ways that this Tony is. I completely agree, yeah. And I mean, we still have him being his old main Marvel Universe self. Like, when he first meets Gwen, he's super smarmy, flirty in the way that Tony totally would be. But yeah, having a Tony Stark who's not all-powerful, who has to really earn little bits of that arrogance rather than just having everything work out for him, I mean, until it all blows up, of course, uh, that works well. Yeah, one of the things that was was consistent in in Silver Age Iron Man is that Tony had to recharge his heart at pretty regular intervals, and it ran through power very, very fast. And that vulnerability and the extent to which it was also just heavy heart, like his life support system was fairly heavy hardware, I think in, in, in a lot of ways made for a much more interesting read on the character than the much slicker one who's, who's emerged from, from you know, later comics and from the movies. Agreed. Gwen's job here is to get Tony to the bridge. There, unfortunately, they are intercepted by Hulk, but Gwen's able to delay him until Tony can breach the security. Too late, though, because Apocalypse's seawall, that series of um, big spiky castles in the ocean, has already been launched. How do you launch something like that? I don't really know. This may be another one of those editorial oversights, but let's just go with it. Things are very, very bad, and the good guys are doomed. I assume it's just a big flying wall. Oh, okay. Like, uh, you could do that in Magic the Gathering. I would cast Flight on, on walls a lot, and, and that was fun. An animate I, wall, I think. I, I don't think that's actually what it is, because we do sort of see it later. Anyway. Anyway, Tony scolds Hulk back into Banner. And I was so relieved to get to this because when they run into Banner in number one, he's got the same injuries and the same clothing as Hulk, and it's really obvious and no one acknowledges it. And I was so irritated. And here it turns out that they, they, the characters did actually 
catch on to it, which was was a relief. So Banner, now that he's not in his evil Hulk, which is to say thing form, cooperates with them. Doctor Doom is there too, and he's like, okay, we've taken control of this badass space shop. Let's go ahead and take out Mikhail. And then let's go ahead and find Apocalypse in North America and take him out. And Tony says, no, they really don't have time. They've got to evacuate the High Council and the innocents in the cargo craft. And that's got to be their priority. I do appreciate Tony's quote here. None of us ever set out to be Avengers. Get it? Get it? So that's half of what's going on on the ship. Uh, We've also got shitty Daredevil trying to keep Empath alive. And we learned a little bit more about Matt, which we've already gone over. Um, He's the first survivor of the upscale program. He thinks it gave him powers. We, the readers, know it didn't. And he accidentally makes brief physical contact with Empath and gets gets a jolt of how miserable everyone is, which horrifies him morally, so he kills Empath out of guilt and tears his own visor off, only to discover that he would have had way better powers without Mikhail's help. You never needed the magic hubcap, Matt. The power was within you all along. Also, that's what you get when you collude with dictators. Yeah. Shitty Daredevil, take that. I'm glad that you're sad. You should be sad. We don't see him again, which is fine. So that's what's going on on Kale's ship, on shop, whatever it is. And Doom and Don Blake head down to warn the High Council, who happen to be in the midst of meeting with Mikhail. And when Mikhail is called on his general bluff of niceness, he basically says, Ha ha ha, forget it. I guess I'm just going to kill everyone, and calls in his upscales. Yeah, because the procedure to give them all gun arms and make them remote-controlled is complete. And we do see that lady from before, the mom, Marta, as one of them. And it's really sad, and she's horrified by the fact that she and her buds are being remote-controlled into doing terrible things. Also, the most important thing is what they're called. They are called the Strife Force. That's right, S-T-R-Y-F-E Force. None of their parents understand them. They are not whiny or sharp enough to be strife force. Well, they don't last long, so that's probably fine, because Tony blows them all away from Shup. Oh, Tony isn't the one who blows them all away. Because while this is going down, Victor Von Doom jumps out the window, steals Mikhail's private flagship, and declares that it now belongs to the revolution, and then shoots most of the, the bad guys through the window. Victor Von Doom, you are a hero of the people in this particular reality. It's it's really pretty delightful. With Mikhail's guard down, Dr. Blake decides that he's had enough and he's going to be the one to take out Mikhail. Mikhail tells him to dream on, which leads to the greatest bit of dialogue in this entire series. In my dreams, devil, I soar through a far finer world than this. I dine and dance among graceful goddesses on the other side of the universe and share home and hearth with heroes. In reality, here, now, I'm just another man in a role I was never meant to play. Look what you've made of us all, Mikhail! Tackles Mikhail, impaling him with his walking stick, and they both go out a window, and that's the end of both Don Blake and Mikhail Rasputin. So I keep going back and forth. Was that walking stick the walking stick that was really Mjolnir? I don't think it can have been, because this is a Don Blake who's clear, who clearly would have been worthy. And who's had a frustrating enough life that he definitely would have hit it kind of hard on a rock at some point. 
But that actually makes me wonder. We know how much Apocalypse has fucked everything up, and we know how much he's targeted any external forces that could have uh, been foils to him. I almost wonder if, with no Avengers, like, was Loki free to collaborate with Apocalypse to basically take out Asgard, and then Apocalypse would have inevitably betrayed and killed Loki and no more Asgardians? So maybe it is the stick that was supposed to be Mjolnir, but Asgard's gone, so there's no more Asgardian magic. Do you really think Apocalypse would have been able to successfully kill Loki? I mean, in this universe? Maybe. It would have been Silver Age Loki. He was really easy to trick. Even Thor could trick him. Okay, good point. I, I was gonna say, I don't, Apocalypse really isn't that crafty, but I guess given given that qualifier, that's that's probably probably feasible. But it is a beautiful scene, and the art is gorgeous, the narration is gorgeous. Like, that's the grace of this series, is just finding this heroism that is inherent to these people, even in circumstances where they've been utterly disempowered. That's the part that really does work among all the parts that don't, and the reason that I'm always going to kind of like X-Universe. So, outside... No longer influenced by by empath, the humans have joined into the fight into the rebellion. They're led by someone who goes by Bullseye, but looks like Clint, and it says he's forgotten his name, but he was referred to as Clinton, called Clinton in the previous issue, so I don't know what the hell's going on there, but he's definitely got blonde hair and wears purple. So this was actually supposed to be Clint Barton, back when Clint Barton was supposed to be James Rhodes, and the type of goatee and sort of medieval outfit he has is clearly a reference to the way that Green Arrow was drawn around that era, so it's just another instance of editorial just confusing the shit out of little elements of the story all over the place. Oh, it's not just a reference to that. Miles, you need to look up the Golden Archer. Is that a McDonald's mascot, or...? It is not. Okay, Golden Archer, check. Checklist for later. Just gonna leave it at that. On the street, Ben is able to save the baby whom we saw briefly just after the baby's father dies and gets both of them to the ship just in time for everyone to, I guess, head into space. Well, except for Ben, because he, he gets shot and he dies too. There's this beautiful Dodson-drawn panel of him with his eyes open, blood pooling under him, holding this baby who is just feels safe and comfortable, like looks almost happy. Oh shit, I didn't realize he was supposed to be dead. I thought he was just kind of shell-shocked and bloody. No, no, he is dead. And so Sue takes the baby from Ben, and then they all get into the spaceships and get the hell out of here. Oh shit, that I missed that detail entirely. I'm sorry, I'm terrible. So, yeah, they fly off into the, well, not sunset, because they're in uh, space, but away from this shitty, shitty world, trying to find somewhere better, and that's when the world ends. That's when X-Men Omega ends, and the timeline is rewritten back into the main Marvel Universe. No, before that happens, we get a panel that is the most irritating red herring in this entire universe, which is a moment of incredibly portentous close-up of the baby's wrist on which it is wearing a little bracelet that says Frankie. This made me bonkers when I was a kid, because I was so convinced that just being an X-Men fan for the most part, I was missing some hugely important reference that would have given the ending of the miniseries like an intense amount of poignancy that I was not able to receive. Eventually, I was thinking, okay, well, Frankie, there's a character named Frankie Ray. She was Nova for a while, and I guess she was important, but I don't think it's her. 
Well, and she was a herald of Galactus, so she's a she's a cosmic character, or or as a character with cosmic ties. She's also got a lot of ties to the Fantastic Four, and to specifically to Johnny Storm. Yeah, so that could kind of work, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure she was white and the baby's not. And I'm pretty, I, I guess she says, I guess you can't really say for sure, but like the baby's definitely referred to as male, which uh, would make that less likely as well. So I think it's just a random baby named Frankie. Maybe it's supposed to obliquely refer to Franklin Richards. Maybe, yeah. But then why wouldn't it say Franklin? I don't know. It's so weird because the ending is so good and then there's this little thing in the corner on the last page that just totally takes you out of it because you're so goddamn confused. Unless we really are missing something and like half of the listeners are going to say, no, you idiots, it's this thing that you totally should have caught. So that's it. That's the end of the series. What do we think of X-Universe? You know... Rereading it, I I think I liked the good parts more and the bad parts less. I think I just become more polarized on this series the more times I read it. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty weak overall. There's a series called Powerless that came out about a decade later that does a lot of things that this series does. It's not set in the Age of Apocalypse, but I think does them somewhat more artfully, partly because it just has a lot more space to do them in and doesn't have to tie into a large event. I feel like this series would really have benefited from getting the full four issues, even though it is double-sized issues. I think just being over the course of four months, it would have had more room to breathe. Well, and more time to be, you know, written and drawn. (laughs) Yeah, that too. So we try to focus on a different area of the Age of Apocalypse with every episode, and this time we were thinking we would talk about what it means to be an augmented human in the Age of Apocalypse and also in the main Marvel Universe, what it means to be a human who is a little more like a mutant. So the big difference between mutants and other superheroes in the Marvel Universe in general is that mutants are born with their mutations. Whether or not those mutations have manifested, they're written into their DNA, they're arbitrary, they're natural, they're, they're you know, inherent, they're, they're genetically based. Um, other, other heroes have in various ways acquired various powers or are extraterrestrial or something like that, but mutants are basically humans with, you know, this, this extra, extra, um, gene that, that does some really improbable things. And you see, you know, humans to whom things happen like the Fantastic Four, but you also see humans who go out of their way to get superpowers and specifically ones who upgrade themselves technologically. We see a lot of mutants who do that in the Age of Apocalypse, but relatively few humans. We do have some pretty prominent examples, though. There are the Reavers from the Weapon X series who have cybernetically enhanced themselves to be better at killing people and work for Apocalypse. We have the Marauders in this series who aren't cyborgs but still have a bunch of tech that they use to also slaughter humans, also for Apocalypse. And then we have Mikhail's augmented humans who are clearly, even if they see it as a devil's bargain, trying to be a little more like mutants just so they can have a place in the world. Well, and we've got one exception to the augmented humans who are all aligned with Apocalypse, and that's Tony Stark. And I'm frankly shocked that we don't see more in the way of human augmentation as a tool of the Resistance. That's very true, yeah, because even though the Resistance doesn't have a lot of resources, this is the Marvel Universe. Like, you can't bike down the block without stumbling over a teleportation device and a bionic arm. That shit's everywhere. Well, and the Resistance may not have a lot of resources, but what the Resistance has had, and specifically has had as an itinerant 
revolutionary style traveling through human-controlled territories is Forge. That's a good point, yeah. Like, I know Forge was busy running a traveling Shakespeare troupe and rescuing people here and there, but I feel like a series about him, and again, we go back to just wanting to see more of Age of Apocalypse Forge, a series about him going around and helping turn humans into not-fucked-up cyborgs so they can have an effective resistance would also be awesome. Yeah, that would have been very, very cool. So you see a much, much wider range of augmented humans in the 616 in the main Marvel Universe, including, you know, tech heroes. Oh yeah, you have tons of heroes and villains with technology-based powers. I mean, you know, everywhere from uh, the Green Goblin, well, I guess it's kind of magical sometimes, but at least one of them is purely technological, um, to, you know, Iron Man, I think is the most obvious example, certainly. But They're not really parallel to mutants because in the main Marvel Universe, mutants aren't the dominant power structure. So there's no question of whether these augmented humans are trying to be more like the folks in charge. Instead, they're just using tech to, like, be good at stuff. What we do see, though, are groups of humans who specifically seek augmentation as a way to imitate mutants, to take on mutants, or to basically transcend humanity as self-made mutants. We see that... um, we see one of one of those groups pretty prominently in in Grant Morrison's X Men run. Um, this is the group that's led by the guy who's claiming to be John Sublime, who it turns out is actually just possessed by the sentient virus that is John Sublime. Oh, um, Morrison. Yeah, that's a whole thing. But who are 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 literally harvesting organs and pieces from mutants that they're they're grafting onto themselves. We see the the Marauders, who are again are are technologically souped up specifically to fight mutants we see mgh users who are kind of in the same category as as um as sublimes folks in that they're they're using mutant derived biologics to attempt to temporarily gain or augment mutant powers one of the things that really fascinates me about mgh about mutant growth hormone is when we see humans who are using it to be trendy essentially because that is fascinating taking on the traits of an oppressed group for kicks. Like, I think there's a lot of metaphor going on there. There's actually a Cyclops panel from that storyline that I like to pull out around Halloween. Um, which is I, I, him saying, I believe, uh, these are our lives, not a game of dress-up for the terminally overprivileged. <laughs> yeah, you should throw that into the uh, visual companion. The other group that I really, really think of in this topic, and I will preface this by saying House of X and Powers of Ten spoilers incoming. If you somehow still haven't read it, even though you care about spoilers, um, then, you know, you could skip ahead for a bit. But I'm thinking of the Man Machine Ascendancy from Powers of Ten. I'm thinking of what human augmentation and artificial intelligence creation led to, which is basically a new species of humanity that is entirely distinct from what came before and has superseded and overwritten humanity. Yeah, the way that mutation interacts with transhumanism as an evolutionary path and as a sort of alternate path for humanity is interesting and in large part informed by really shoddy science, but still fun and interesting. And we, we covered... Um, powers of powers of 10 at, at more length than a previous episode which we'll link to in the visual companion to this one so i feel like we could go on with that topic for ages but we have to finish up this episode at some point so let's answer some questions an anonymous listener asks on tumblr in the early claremont issues wolverine mentions being able to communicate with a tiger but to my knowledge it never comes up again 
Is Wolverine able to talk to animals but never mentions it, or is this just something that has been completely forgotten since? Well, maybe he was just talking about how he knew this lady named Tiger Tiger in Madripoor, and that's all he meant? Uh, no, you're totally right. That does come up. I was going to say maybe he could just talk to tigers, which most people can, and the tigers don't really care. Oh yeah, I talk to my cat all the time. I don't think she knows what the hell I'm talking about, but... Oh, she definitely does not. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yes, this is something that's come up, not just with tigers, often with wolves or deer or whatever. The thing is, it's not exactly a power power, or maybe it is. It's kind of like Gambit's charm, like, is it a power or is it just a thing he does? I always kind of figured that he just multiclassed into Druid. Yeah, he's got just like one level of Druid. I hope it's a newer edition, because otherwise those experience costs would just be like out of out of control for both classes. But that specifically he's a very he's he's very, very good with animals. He's very experienced with that. That's generalizable to some extent. Yeah, and part of that I think is that after what happened in Wolverine Origin, which was, you know, his origin, he was indeed living out in the wilderness and hanging out with some animals for a while. But basically what he has is called animal empathy. It does come up come up periodically across eras and also across media, because we see a little bit of this in the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon. Um, I tried to find specific examples, but uh, it's really hard to, it turns out. So the short version is Logan can sense the basic emotional state of animals due to like their scent and their body language and stuff, and he can occasionally communicate basic ideas to them using his own body language, and I don't know, maybe his scent also, who, who can say? And that's basically it. So he's not talking to tigers the way that Aquaman talks to fish, but he can sort of like, you know, vibe with them a little bit. Okay, so 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 he can't he can't really communicate with he can he can vibe with animals, and that is that is his official power. Yes, yes. Logan, James Howlett, viberwithanimals.wolverine.tumblr.com. Philby asks via email, is there a story behind how Professor X lost his hair, or does he just shave his head regularly? There is, in fact, a story behind how Professor X lost his hair. It fell out when his psychic powers started to manifest. This is established canonically in Uncanny X-Men number 12, the first Juggernaut story in which the Juggernaut attacks the X-Mansion for most of an issue while Professor X tells delightful anecdotes about his terrible childhood. I love this idea, though. I love the fact that there was, like, too much psychic power in his head, and so it pushed all his hair out of his follicles. Yes, that is basically what happened. There is a really fun Jack Kirby-drawn panel in that issue when Xavier is telling the X-Men about this, where we see, like, a very severely balding young teenager Xavier, and for some reason it is goddamn hilarious to me. Welp, now you know. Uh, also, Stanley apparently said in interviews that Xavier's appearance was based on Yul Brynner, who uh, always was bald in his movies, so uh, there you go. Uh, although Brynner actually adopted that as a signature look only after he got really, really well-known for playing Believe in the King and I. I remember that being a really good movie. I don't know if it holds up at all these days. It's probably, like, super offensive. Everything is. I have not seen it. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and... Some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, I believe the microphone goes over to the most generally disappointing horseman, Mikhail Rasputin. My human friends, a new day of cooperation and love dawns as we unite our purposes. Our goals are shared. Peace, prosperity, and most importantly, 
magnificent technological upgrades to our primitive bodies. I mean, do you think I was born with this radical golden circuit skin? I had to save up so many box tops. For the non-mutants genetically challenged, there is the slight issue of the 99.999999% of subjects who die horribly during the upgrade process. But Jim Hart, surely you and your brethren would agree that any risk is worth the chance to become double-jointed. And Katrina Ow, while your last name may become apt during the agonizing process of cybernetic enhancement, what is an hour's pain when it is in service to the ability to cross one eye at a time? Jim and Katrina, please have a seat under those fire bars and spinning blades, and we'll begin. My dear humanity, let us better ourselves and ascend toward a new perfection. Myself, shitty daredevil, and the three or four of you who will survive. I see literally zero downsides to this plan. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and click over to our Public shop, where all of the profits this June are going to Trans Lifeline. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next episode... Our penultimate in the Age of Apocalypse will be looking at a few ways it didn't turn out in the pages of What If. Okay, and now the next time. I love that. <laughs> yeah, me too. John John Jameson or J. Jonah Jameson the Third is um is an integral part of the the cap wolf storyline yeah he's an astronaut werewolf that's my favorite part. that's that's why how he became the a werewolf because he became a werewolf because he found a cool gem on the moon and then had it made into a necklace and then the first time he went out in the necklace in the full moon he turned into a werewolf if i had a dime for every time that happened uh okay the next time part weirdly the same thing happened to buzz aldrin knew it <laughs>